you have your that little green book, turn to page number 10. I'm going to jump into this first truth. Take your Bible and look with me in Joshua, the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua chapter 21, the last chapter of the book of, excuse me, Judges chapter 21, last book of Judges, Judges chapter 21. Judges 21. Stand together with me, if you would, for a moment while I look at a couple verses here, a verse. Judges 21. The book of Judges, as you may know, is a, a period of Israel's history where they had come into the promised land. We talked about Moses in Sunday school. Well, Joshua led them in, as you recall. And as long as Joshua and his contemporaries were alive, things went pretty well. And the book of Joshua is kind of the record of all that scenario. Well, after Joshua and his contemporaries passed off the scene, the people started to revert. There, there, there's, a, there's a cycle that we see in, in the book of Judges. God had told the nation of Israel, if you will obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, there's conflict that results from that. And so they started to involve themselves in the sin of the surrounding nations. And God, true to his word, said, if you involve yourself in the practices of the nations around you, then you'll become in bondage to them. And so God brought them into the bondage of the Amorites, the Tites, Parasites, whatever. God brought them into the bondage of some nation around them. In the midst of that bondage and servitude, they cried out in prayer and supplication and said, God, please send us a deliverer. And the book of Judges is the story of these judges, these deliverers, 13 of them, 12 men, one woman, that God brought at strategic moments to provide salvation for the nation. And then, in, then there was a period of silence where, again, they honored God, obeyed God. But invariably, after a period of time, they would again involve themselves in the sin of the surrounding nations. Again, God, true to his word, would bring them into bondage. Again, they would pray. Again, God would raise up a judge. Again, there'd be silence. And this cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, silence goes over and over again in the book of Judges. Now, the last verse of the last chapter is a summary of the entire book. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like America to you? Look at it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Father, I pray that you would take this moment that we have together and open our eyes, help us to be honest, to see where we have been caught in the middle, where we have been looking at the world around us. Compared to the world, we look pretty good. But I pray that we would open our eyes to who you are and see ourselves through the lens of Scripture and bring us to brokenness where we would step inside that circle and get our eyes off everyone else and say, God, it's me, O oh Lord, that stands in the greatest need. We'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Turn back a few chapters in Judges to Judges chapter 13. Judges 13 is the account of the most famous judge of Israel. His name is Samson. And so in this cycle that we see here, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord delivered them to the hands of the Philistines. So, so they're in the servitude part of this little cycle, and the Philistines are their captors. And so they are praying. They're, as they've done so many times before, God, please raise up a deliverer. There's a certain man, family of Danites. His wife was barren. And an angel comes to her in verse 3 
and says to her, you're going to have a son. And this son is going to be taking a vow in the verse four and five, enumerate the vow called the Nazarite vow that, that he's going to keep. One, he's not going to drink wine or strong drink. Secondly, he's not going to eat an unclean thing, touch an unclean thing. And thirdly, he's not going to have a razor come to his hair. Now, now those things did not make Samson strong. Those were just outward signs that, that he was acknowledging and his family was acknowledging were set apart to God. And, and, here, and here's some signs of that. So in verse number 24, the woman gives birth to the son, names him Samson, child grows, Lord blesses him. And verse 25 says, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him at times. God began to use this young man, Samson, for the purpose that he was raised up for, to provide deliverance to the nation from the Philistines. Samson was incredibly used of God. He could have been even more incredibly used of God, but he had a besetting sin. He had an issue in his life that kept him from being all that God wanted him to be. One of the prerequisites for revival is purity. We're going to talk about that during these days. There, there are some of you here this morning, you won't be back because you have so involved yourself with this impurity that you can hardly stand it to be here for one hour on Sunday morning. Now listen, I want to tell you, I'm not condemning you for that. I, I know where that, that journey is. I, I want to tell you, there is solution and victory, and God wants you to live in holiness. We're going to talk about that this week. And if you'll come during these days, these could be the purest week of your life and give you some handles on how to live that way. But Samson had an issue. We see in chapter 13 or chapter 14, verse 1, his, his problem. Samson went down to Timnath, and there he saw a woman. His issue was moral impurity. His issue was a woman problem. And so he comes back to his parents in verse 2 and says, I saw a woman in Timothy, get her for me as a wife. Now, now back in this culture, they didn't have dating. It didn't, you, know, you didn't go kiss a few toes to find the handsome prince. It didn't work that way. If you wanted to get married, then, then, then the bride's parents and the groom's parents had to get together, and they talked about a dowry, and, and it was all arranged by the parents. I think that would be a great idea for our culture, don't you? How many parents would vote for that? You, you picked out the, the mate for your husband, your, your child and son or daughter. Did you vote for that as parents? Yeah. How many teenagers vote for that? Teens vote for that? Mm, not as many. Okay. Uh, but just think how that would help parents have relationships, right? I mean, they might come home on time. If, if they knew you were picking out their husband or wife, they might clean their room. Who knows? It, it really helped, but it's not happening. So anyway, so verse three, the parents, they don't like this choice. So they say to Samson, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among your people? In other words, what's wrong with the girls in our youth group? You know, why do you want to go someplace else, right? He says, well, last part of verse 3, she looks good to me. I like the way she looks. Well, you, you know how this story perhaps goes, and, and uh, they, they didn't end up getting married because um, they, they got to his fiance, and it says they plowed with her heifer, anyway, and, uh, and, and got her to tell the story, and so that did not happen, and then he tied some on the fox's tails and burnt fields. Anyway, move on to chapter number 16. Here's the next chapter in his love life, chapter 16. He goes into Gaza. He goes into a harlot. They think they've captured him now because, you know, he's in this gated city, and he gets up, tears the gates off the city, and, and uh, they don't capture him. So verse 4, here's the last chapter of Samson's love life, chapter 16, verse 4. After this, it came about, a loved woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, entice him, see where his great strength lies. Now, I think that we have this wrong idea of Samson. We see pictures of Samson, drawings, and, and they, they show him as some great big, you know, Arnold Schwarzenberger, you know, WWF wrestler or whatever, some great big muscle-bound, whatever. 
I, I think Samson was like a 98-pound weakling, kind of like me. I'm just, you know, just a, a short, you know, scrawny nothing. Because here's the deal. If he was some great big muscle-bound guy, he went out at one time and killed a 1,000 of them with a jawbone of a donkey. If he was some great big guy, they'd say, man, that guy's been in the gym. He's, he, he works out. That's incredible. I think they looked at him and said, how does he do that? He's nothing. He's nobody. So here's what I found. God takes the weak things of the world to overcome the strong things. He takes the foolish to confound the mighty. And sometimes we say, I, I just don't think I have much to offer to God. I I don't have much money, I don't have much ability, much talent. How could God ever use me? God is not looking for ability. If you have any ability, he gave it to you. If you have any money, he gave it to you. It's God who gives you the power to get wealth. He's not looking for those things. He's looking for availability. And if you'll just say, God, here I am with whatever you've given me, I will use it. These two gentlemen raise chickens and give eggs to people. Okay, they're using that. It's a great example. They talked to me this morning. Just to say, God, how can I minister in some way just to people? God just wants us to be available to him, and he'll provide that for us. But we think, well, I don't have all these great gifts, talents, and abilities, so certainly God can't use me. No, God takes weak things. And I think they're looking at Samson saying, how does he do that? He's, he's such a nobody. So they go to Delilah. They say, Delilah, if you'll find out the secret, we will make you one rich woman. And so they offer her, each of them, 1,100 pieces of silver. So she comes in to Samson, verse 6, and says, tell me, how come you're so strong? She said, well, this is number 7. I'll tell you, if you got some fresh, seven fresh cords, never been dried, tie me up, I'd be as weak as the other man. So she has the Philistines hiding in another room. She gets some cords, ties them up, and says, in verse 9, the Philistines want you, Samson. He jumps up. He breaks the cords like a string when it touches a but a bowstring touches fire, and his strength is not discovered. So she says in verse 10, you've deceived me, told me lies. What's the real secret? Well, I'll tell you what. If you got some new rope, tie me up with new rope, man, I would be as weak as the other man. So she does that, ties him up, verse 12, says the Philistines are upon you. He jumps up, snaps the rope like it's a piece of thread. Verse 13, you've deceived me, told me lies. He's like, okay, here's the deal. If you took my hair, weave it into seven locks, and that, that would do me in. Again, she says, a Philistines are upon you. He jumps up, pulls the pin out, and his strength is not known. Now, I'll tell you something about Samson. He may have been the strongest man that ever lived, but he wasn't the smartest man that ever lived. I mean, seriously. You tell this woman three times and she does it, don't you think she's going to do it the fourth time? But, but here's the deal. People who involve themselves in moral impurity make some of the most foolish choices. I mean, they'll throw away their life, family, ministry, whatever, for a few moments' enjoyment, for a few looks on a computer, for just a, a little impurity. That, that's why one of the prerequisites to revival is God dealing with the issue of purity in our life. Anyway, she um, starts crying. Verse 16, 16 says, she, she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, so his soul was annoyed unto death. Talk about a nagging, contentious woman. I mean, there she is, right? Finally, verse 17, he spills his guts. Here's the deal. I took this vow. He'd already broken the first two aspects of the vow. He was already partying with the Philistines and drinking things. He was already, remember, he killed that lion, and on the way back, uh, he went there. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead carcass. A hive of bees had formed in there. He, 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 he treated lightly the vows he had made to God. I think we do that. 
Ever made a vow to God? Here's one, till death do us part. Remember that one? We, we treat lightly the vows we have made to God. During these days, it's a time to renew our vows. God wants you to stay married to the person you're currently married to for the rest of your life. And, and we, want, we want to see how that's possible. God, God wants us to keep the vows we have made to, to him in, in purity and holiness and righteousness. We've all made those vows, and, but sometimes we treat them lightly, just like Samson did. So here's the deal. He said, I've, I've never had my hair cut. So she finally sees, okay, I've got the secret. So verse 19, she puts him to sleep, has somebody come in, shave off those seven locks. And the verse I want you to see is verse 20. So for the, for the fourth time, she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep. He said, I'll go out as other times. I'll shake myself free. He knew there was a problem. I didn't feel right. I mean, he was air-conditioned on top for one thing, right? He said, I, I, I'll, I'll shake myself free. I'll, I'll do some jumping jacks. I'll, I, it, things aren't gone. I'll, I'll get the blood going. Something's not right. But look at the last phrase in verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. They came in, seized him, gouged out his eyes. He was a grinder at the prison the rest of his life. What, what, I don't know what you think of when you think of revival. We talked about that in Sunday school, but here, here's the definition. We talked about the presence of God in Sunday school. Revival is the presence of God, the power of God, and the peace of God, resting on a life, a family, a church, a nation, or a world. It's my definition of revival. And here's the tragedy about Samson in verse 20. He lost the power of God, and he didn't even know it. He lost God's power. And he, 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 something was different, but he didn't know he'd lost God's power, and he goes out trying to attack the enemy like he'd always done without the power of God. And the problem I see in the church today is we are trying to attack our culture. We're trying to change our families. We're trying to impact our world, and we've lost the power of God. And no wonder we're so easily defeated. The power of God. Do you know much about the power of God? It says in Luke that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He told his disciples, he said, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. See, part of our problem is we don't want to meet the condition of tarry ye. He said, you wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to have power from on high. But we don't want to wait. We live in this instant age you know, we have instant replays and instant potatoes and instant coffee. We want instant power, instant spirituality, instant revival. I mean, who wants eight days of meeting with God? Who wants, who wants to set aside their calendar and do that? When was the last time you got with God and said, God, I am not going to move from this place until once again I know your power in my life? We don't, we don't take time to wait on God. Let's just say that... Um, pastor decided that uh, we're going to have a building program. We're going to go cut down these trees out here. We're going we're to build a, a new Sunday school setting because we need more classrooms. And so everybody goes home and they get their chainsaws and their um, axe and whatever. And we uh, go down to various places and we're all cutting down our trees. And as you're cutting down the tree, uh, the, the axe head works its way off the handle and you're down by a lake or something and, and it lands in the water. And all you're left with is an axe handle. Now, for this morning, I want you to let this axe handle represent everything you are apart from God. This is all of your knowledge, your character, 
determination, talent, education, all your degrees, your abilities, potential, personality, all your wealth, all your fame, everything you are apart from God, that's the axe handle. And then let this axe head represent the presence of God, the power of God, and the peace of God. And I want to suggest that this is where many of us find ourselves. We've lost the power of God in our life, and all we're left with is a dead stick. And we're trying to accomplish the work of God, and we're getting no place. Now, if you lose God's power in your life, you have three choices. The first thing you can do is quit. Some of us have done that. I've seen good people that have given up. They've lost God's power. They're getting no place. And they say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I quit. It happens to good people. Jeremiah, the prophet. Can you imagine? Jeremiah, the prophet, he preached for 40 years with no converts. No one was inviting him to the Build a Bigger Church Conference, I want to tell you. 40, 40 years. And finally, in, in, fact, in, in, in Jeremiah 20, about verse 9, they, they had stoned him with tomatoes and thrown him in a pit. He's knee-deep, waist-deep in mud. And he said, okay, God, that's it. I'm done. I am never going to speak or make mention of your name again. He quit. And that didn't last long because God's word was like a fire shut up in his bones. But, but, he, but good people can do that. They say, you know, I've, I've, I've done all I know to do. I've, I've obeyed every preacher. I've read all the books. I, I know what the Bible says. There's still no joy. It's just not worth it. I'm just going to hang on and hope for the second coming. That's all I'm going to do. I quit. But you, you come on Sunday because you kind of feel guilty. And then secondly, you can fake it. You're out cutting down this tree. Your accent flies off. And so you just keep on swinging. No one else is watching. They're cutting down their own trees. So you just keep on beating on the tree with this dead stick, right? Come in for lunchtime, and somebody says, man, that guy's a hard worker. Look at all the sweat he worked up. Another guy says, yeah, I was walking past his tree. He was swinging so fast, I couldn't even see the accent. That guy's a hard worker. He's got the same clothes, looks the same, does the same. But listen, you're not going to cut down a tree with a dead stick. You can beat on that thing for a year. You're not going to cut it down. You come back a year later, it'll just be beat up. It's not going to be down. And that's what we do. We come to church, put on our smile, put on our clothes. Everything looks great. Go through the motions. But we're not affecting anything. We're not affecting our job, the people we work with. We're not affecting our family, the culture around us. We're going through the motions using a dead stick trying to have an impact, and it's not going to happen. You can quit, you can fake it, or you can get it back. And that's what these next eight days are about. These next eight days are about you getting the ax head back on the handle of your life. How, how do we do that? Well, I, I think that the starting point for us is to go back and to identify where we have lost it. So I want to start by sharing with you the three ways that are most common to me, because I've gone through seasons of knowing the power of God and seasons of not. And I want to share, here are the three things I've found most common to me to cause the accent to fly off the handle of my life. The first one is just the area of pretense. We lose God's power when we start pretending. Samson pretended to be a friend of the enemy. He pretended to be smarter than the enemy. We won't read the story, but you know how he gave him a riddle and, and so forth. He was trying to, in his pride, show his intelligence. He pretended to be stronger than the enemy. He goes out to 
attacked them without God's power and was easily overcome. We live a life of pretense. You know, um, you, ever, you ever gone to a, a costume party of some kind? You know, we had to wear a mask. You know the first thing you want to do when you put a mask on? You want to take it off. There's something gross about breathing in your own face. You know, it's just not real enjoyable, right? And some of us come to church and we put our mask on. I'm, I'm, let, let me ask you a question to illustrate this. I'm going to ask you a question. I want all of you to answer me verbally, okay? I'm going to ask it. Everybody answer at once. How are you today? Fine, good, and great. Hundreds of people, everybody's fine, good, and great. Do you think we're all really fine, good, and great? I, I don't think so. Some of us are hurting in our marriages and physically and financially, but we've just put on our mask and we come and we say, fine. A, a, a typical Sunday morning scene is here this family's getting ready for church and, and dad, you know, dad's a big help, right, on Sunday morning, isn't he? All uh, right, and so, so he gets his coffee and his paper and he's looking at the fact that, you know, number two, three, and four lost yesterday and so he's engrossed in that, you know, and so he's sitting there reading the paper and, and mom, she's trying to get the breakfast ready, the kids ready, herself ready, you know, dad's reading the paper, right? Now, now dad does do one thing at the appropriate moment. He looks at his watch and says, it's time to leave. That's dad's contribution for the morning, right? So, so dad, he gets out in the car, and mom, she's, she's throwing the kids out the car, coats out the car, Bible's out the car. Dad, he's hawking the horn. Come on, we're going to be late. He hadn't lifted the finger to help, but now he's upset because we're going to be late. Mom, she runs out the door. Her hair is half up at lightning rods. You know, she's throwing curlers back in the door. She gets one leg in the car, and dad starts backing down the driveway, right? She finally gets in the car, and on the way to church, World War III erupts. One kid wants in the back seat. Now he wants in the front seat. I went through it up. I went through it down. I don't remember the Bible. And dad says, we should quite go to church. And then an amazing thing happens. We, we drive in the church parking lot. It's like going through a washing machine ringer. Everyone calmly steps out. <laughs> Pastor Mark greets us. How you doing today, folks? And we say, fine. <laughs> Our kids look at us. What car do you ride in? <laughs> And we've just learned that that's what it takes to, listen, the next time someone says, how are you, why don't you tell them the truth? Maybe you should say, do you really want to know? They probably don't. But, you know, but, but if you're not fine, don't say fine. But we've just learned that that's what it takes. You, you've got to put this mask on. You've got to live behind. I, I read about a, a clown who was unemployed, and he went to get a job at a um, employment agency, and there wasn't a whole lot of jobs for clowns, but while he was talking to the employment agent, got a phone call, said, just a minute, he answered the phone, he said, you're not going to believe this, he said, but this is the city zoo, they want to know if I have someone who will come down and dress up like a monkey, they're having a shortage of monkeys, and, and they, until they get some more shipped in, would you like the job? He said, hey, it's a job, and so he's a little clown anyway, so he went down there, they put this monkey outfit on him, baboon head on, put him in this monkey area, a couple of monkeys there, and so... Your monkey see, a monkey do. They chatter, chatter. They eat bananas, eat bananas. They scratch, eat scratch. It wasn't a bad job. But, but after a couple of days, it got a little boring. I just monkeying around all day. And so, so he realized that right next to the monkey area was the lion area. He thought, if I tie a rope on that one branch, I can swing out over the lions. So he rigged it up. The next day, the zoo opened up, and the crowd gathered. And he said, what's he going to do? And he grabbed this rope, and he swung out over those lions. The lion snarled and growled, and the crowd oohed and awed and gasped, and he swung back to safety, and everyone applauded. He became the hit of the zoo. It made the front page of the paper, come see our death-defying monkey. And every day, he would do this thing, swinging out over the lions. One day, the crowd was lined up as far as he could see, waiting for him to do his thing. 
He got up there in the tree. He said, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He grabbed the rope, swung it over the lions. But this time, just as he got over the lions, the rope snapped. Down he dropped in that den of lions. He pulled that baboon off. He said, help, help. Get me out of here. One of the lions said, be quiet, you fool. Both lose our jobs. <laughs> now, you know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of the average church. Because we all put our mask on. And we, how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. But we hardly wait to get out of here to get our mask off. And we're just bumping into each other's masks. What if someone is to put up on this screen a video of the highlights of your last week? They followed you around all week, videoing everything you did last week. Everything you watched on TV, everything you brought up on your phone, your computer, your tablet, every place you went, every conversation you had in your home, everything you did in the, in Friday and Saturday night, everything you did videoed, and then we just kind of flashed on the screen, life at your house. Would anyone go, oh, not that family. They wouldn't talk like that to each other. They wouldn't do that, say that good. They're not like that. Wouldn't anyone be shocked to see what goes on behind the doors of your home? If, there, if it would be shocking, then the fact is, you're saying one thing here at the church, living another way behind the doors of your home. You're an axe handle. I was in a church in South Carolina. Associate pastor came to give a testimony one night, and he said, um, my daughter this week came to me and said, Dad, I like you better at church than at home. He said, I realize why. At, at church, I'm a nice guy. I'm smiling, happy, helping people. I'm a different person at home. We're, we're living a life of pretense. I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. There's a church that was real, real uh, deep. This, like, this is white. It was real deep. And they had a balcony coming over. And there was a deacon who sat all the way in the last row, had double doors out the back. And he came one night to give a testimony. And he said, um, he said you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a deacon here. So I, I was saved seven years ago. He'd been an alcoholic. His wife had come. They had prayed for him for a long time. He had gotten saved, delivered from alcohol. It's a great story. He said, and about, for about four years into that, you, you made me a deacon, which was fine. And for a couple of years, I was okay. But about a year ago, I started to involve myself in some of those things I was involved in before I got saved. He said, uh, I've stood there at the back door for a year, told you I was fine. So I've not been fine. I've, I've come today to resign as a deacon, and I'm not qualified. I ask you to forgive me for lying to you for the past year. Now, I've thought about that many times. Why not the first time he walked past that bar, why not go to one of his fellow deacons and say, you know, some people can be around that. I can't. I, I have an addiction. And I, I can't even be around that. Would you pray for me? Why not the first time he took a drink, go back to his pastor and say, Pastor, I haven't had a drink in six years. Some people can handle that. I can't handle that. Would, would, you, would, you, would, you pray, would you pray for me? Why did he wait a year? Why did he let it go and, and, and get to the depth that it was? You know why I believe? Because... In his mind, everyone at church was perfect. So how could he admit that he was having an issue if everyone else was, all, was so perfect because everyone else had their mask on? And the problem is we live this life of pretense. When you start talking further down the road than you're walking, you lose the power of God in your life. You start telling your kids, now don't do this, but you're doing the same thing, and you wonder why. And, and because of our pretending, we've lost God's power in our life. 
Here's the second one. They, they really go hand in hand. The second one is, is, is pride. We lose God's power when we get pride. That's why brokenness is a prerequisite for revival. Samson was proud. He, he told his parents what to do, get me a wife. Told him he was his own God, basically. Didn't really need God's way. Even told God what to do eventually. And in his pride, he became the God of his life. And, and if you are living in a life of pride, you will not live in a life of revival. Revival and pride do not coexist. Now, pride is a hard thing to define. Let, let me give you some symptoms of pride. Just look at these. Some symptoms of pride. Pride causes me to deal with respectable problems rather than real problems. If I was to ask you, what do you want to see God do in your life in these next eight days, you might say, I want to be a better Christian. Now, I hope every Christian wants to be a better Christian. You might say, well, I want to be a better husband. I hope every husband wants to be a better husband. But see, we don't want to deal with real issues. We want to deal with respectable things. When's the last time you were in a prayer meeting and somebody asked for a request and, and somebody stood up and said, uh, would you pray for me? I'm a gossip. I have a wicked heart, a gossiping tongue. Pray. No, we don't do that. We'd say, I'll pray for Aunt Susie. She has ingrown toenail surgery next week, whatever. And, and that's about as far as we go because we don't want to deal with the real issues of our life. If you're not going to deal with the real issues of your life, you're not going to meet God in these days. Pride causes me to leave a better impression of myself than is honestly true. Now, let me reiterate this again. We do not have a revival as a team. We've not come to bring you something. We are all in a process we, we, all, we're, we're, we all have needs. I don't have a perfect marriage. I don't have perfect kids, for sure. I don't have a perfect life. In fact, if you could see in my heart, you'd spit in my face. I've, I've not come here to give you something. We've come here to ask God to do in our lives the same thing we want to see him do in yours. And if you don't have an attitude that says, I have a need, if you aren't sharing that with your family, if you don't ask forgiveness, if, if, if that is not normal for you, if you don't, in your Sunday's class, in small groups, if, if there is not a, a real honesty with someone else about your life, then, then you don't know the power of God in your life. You're leaving an impression that you're someone that you're really not. Here's another thing about pride. Pride causes uh, us to be more concerned about what people think than what God knows. There is something, God knows everything about us. But we start pretending because we, we are more concerned what people are going to think if I do this or say that or don't do that. What are people going to think? We've set aside a room in these days, a prayer room. Where is the prayer room at? Out this door? That direction? We'll say more about it tonight. It's just a room with empty chairs. But there may be times where, where God will prompt you to get out of your seat go back to that prayer room. And you'll sit there and think, what will everybody think of me? There may be times God prompts you to come to the altar and pray. And you're going to sit there and think, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Well, everybody, they might think I have problems. Uh, yeah, we all do. But we're more concerned about what people are thinking than what God is thinking, than what God knows. And that's just because of our pride. So it keeps us from obeying because what are people going to think if we really get honest? Pride causes us to change the name of sin. God calls it lying. We call it a white lie, whatever that is. God calls it cheating. We call it abnormal social development. God calls it immorality. We call it the new morality. God calls it gossip. We call it sharing prayer requests, right? Only telling you this so we can pray about it. No, no, you, you have a gossiping heart connected to a gossiping tongue. 
If what you're saying is not direct to the person who is the problem or the solution, it's called gossip. And we just change the name of it so we feel better about ourselves. Pride causes me to defend and justify and blame others. If you just knew the husband I have, the reason I, if you just knew my wife, if, if you just knew our pastor, if you just knew what that former pastor did to me, if you just knew what my boss is like, if you just knew my parents, we've always got someone that we can blame our situation on. And pride causes us to do that, to defend and justify and blame and rationalize. And the problem is, we are not stepping inside that circle and saying, wait a minute, it's me, O oh Lord, that stands in the need of prayer. Here, here's the last one. We lose God's power, thirdly, when we disobey. Disobedience. Samson ran with the world, lived with the world, and died with the world. He could have been used in even greater ways, but he did not obey. You know what it takes to stop the working of God in your life? All it takes is one time for you to say no. Does that mean you lose your salvation? No, but there is great loss when you say no to God. Adam disobeyed. He lost the Garden of Eden. Moses disobeyed. He lost Canaan. David disobeyed, lost his family. Achan disobeyed, lost his life. Where has God told you? Most of us don't need another message. We already know what to do. We haven't done it. What has God told you to do and you've said no? What, what truth is it? You said, I am not going to do that. We're in a church in Texas some time ago. It was a church, 3,000 in Sunday school. We were in a staff meeting the first week, and the guy, Christian ed director in charge of the Sunday school, said, uh, he said, seven years ago, I lost God's power in my life. He said, how could you be in charge of a Sunday school of 3,000 without God's power? The guy had a lot of charisma. He was an organizer, administrator, great. And in his own energy, as an ax handle, he could administrate a Sunday school of 3,000. But he said, it's all been wood, hay, and stubble. It's all worthless at judgment because I've done it in my own strength because seven years ago, I disobeyed God. He said, I was at another church. I wasn't making as much money. I went to get my paycheck cashed at a grocery store, the service counter there, and um, she cashed my check. She turned and walked away. And, and next to my stack of money was another stack of money. It, it wasn't a whole lot, but it's a lot to me. And so as she turned her back and walked away, I reached, I pulled that one stack into mine and walked out with it. He said, for seven years, God has said, you stole that money, take it back, make it right. For seven years, I've said no. For seven years, I've been an ax handle. He, he went back to that store that week and made it right, got the axe back on the handle of his life. We just came from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lebanon, Palmyra. I was there some years ago and drove past the church. We're just at, at a little stone church. And a deacon in that church came and said, 30 years ago, God called me into the ministry. I said, God, I've got a good job. I'm making lots of money. I'll give it away. And he had done that. But he's lost his family. He said, all my kids are divorced. My daughter had an affair with the pastor. My life's disaster. Is it too late for me? No. But you've got to go back. What, what is it you've said no to God? God, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to deal with that. Maybe you're married to the person you're married to without parental consent. You don't divorce them, but you go back and ask forgiveness from your parents. What is it? I don't know what it is for you. You say, God, I'll go in for I'm not going to go there. I'll do it. I'm not going to do that. I'll give anything. I'm not going to give that. What is it? Whatever you've said, you'll not do. Until you say yes to God, you never go any farther. Now, 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 what's the solution as we walk through these days? How do we get God's power back in our life? 
cry out to the master. It's not about Steve or Jimmy or Mark. It's not about these days. Your master is Jesus. You cry out to him. He is the answer, not us. And you go back to where you lost it. Identify where did you lose the power of God? In the Old Testament, there's a story of a prophet who has some preacher boys he's training. They are building a project, and this very thing happens. An axe head flies off in the water, and the prophet boys come, and they say to their prophet, their teacher, we lost the accent. And he said, where did you lose it? And they go back and they show him the place. You've got to go back. It may have been seven days ago, seven years ago, wherever it is where you said no to God, where you lost God's power, where you got proud or pretentious or personally disobedient. And then the, in this story in the Old Testament, the prophet takes a stick, throws it in the water, and the, the iron accent floats to the top. And the prophet says to the student, okay, reach out and pick it up. And I, I believe in these days, God's going to float past your life some solutions. But that axe head didn't jump out of the water and jump back up in the handle. He, he had to reach out and take what was there. And I believe God's going to float past your life some solutions for your marriage, for your family, for your personal walk. But <laughs> you've got to reach out and take what God's offering. You've got to be here to receive it. And, and I believe if you do that, if you will receive what God offers to you, you can get the accident back on the handle of your life. It can change your marriage. It can change your family, change your future. But you've got to receive what God's taking. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I, I don't know where God finds you this morning. Maybe like me, you're at a point where I've been many times where I've not been living in the power of God, the peace of God, the presence of God. Have you ever known a time in your life when God was real, when there was joy and peace and power? If you've never known that at all, and you don't have a relationship with Christ, then after the service, you need to come talk with your pastor or myself or one of us. We'd be happy to introduce you to Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian, and there was a time in your life when God was real, there was joy, there was peace, there was power, you knew the presence of God. What, what's happened? Are you tired of hitting that tree with a dead stick, trying to change your marriage, change your family, impact your world, your neighborhood, your church, your small group, and, and it's like you're getting no place? Tired of hitting it without the power of God? I, I want to ask you to pray a simple prayer this morning. And think about it before you pray it. Here's the prayer. Lord, I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next eight days. Now, now, now don't pray that without thinking it through. Lord, I give you the freedom. I'm not saying you're going to do what I say, what Mark says. You're saying this to God. God, I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next eight days. I don't know what that is for you. You probably don't either. But whatever it is that you would say, God, whatever needs to change, wherever I need to obey, whatever I need to start, stop, go, whatever you, God, I, I'm open to you. I'm giving you freedom to put your hand into my heart, into my life, to rearrange whatever needs to be rearranged. I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next eight days. If you can pray that, I want you to seriously think it through and, and tell God that right now. 